When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But you know, man, I was overjoyed because I was doing what I knew I was I was born to do. Was there something that stuck out that changed the way you approached the game? Don't turn down no gigs. There's nothing you can go do to become a comedian. You have to be born this way. Let's just let that go. You've yeah. said some funny <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Let's run, ruin your whole career. Dr. Phil said, what? Oh, my God. Hey, it's Dr. Phil, and you're on Fill in the Blanks. I don't need to tell you who that was, because that is one of the most distinctive voices in radio, television, film. That is my dear friend, Steve Harvey. What can I say about Steve Harvey? I've said that fill in the blanks is going to be me talking to interesting people in an unfiltered way. No censor, just talking. That's exactly what you're going to get with Steve. Look, we've been really good friends for a long time, and still, I was very excited to do this. You're going to find some things out about Steve that you do not know. Mm -hmm. I mean, this guy is an incredibly hard worker. Yes. He's a comedian, radio host, television host, producer, radio personality, actor, author. He's six-time Daytime Emmy Award winner, two-time Marconi Award winner for radio. You can't turn on the television and not see this guy. He's He's got his talk show, Steve, Family Feud, Celebrity Family Feud, Little Big Shots, Showtime at the Apollo, the Miss Universe pageant, which he gets right once in a while. Not all the time, but he gets right once in a while. What do you think, Laferne? I'm, I'm here with Laferne Cusack, my producer. What do you think about this interview? Steve is dedicated to his craft and dedicated to winning. I'm like, oh my God, I got to step up my game. This guy is prolific. There's no question about it. So I'm going to quit talking about him because he's going to get a big head if I keep on. So let's just talk to him. We're going to start that in just a minute. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Uh, Just a heads up, I got my podcast crew around here, and you're going to hear a lot of laughing and cutting up in the background here. I just know because I know Steve Harvey, and he and I have been on the golf course all day, and we just kind of stumbled in here to do this, and he is in a mood. So you're going to hear a lot of yucking it up in the background. If you're wondering who it is, it's my podcast crew. We're just having fun today. So here we go. 
asking what this is about. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand why we're here. Uh, <laughs> so but you, Dr. Phil, you my boy, so you call me and you say, hey, man, come on down, we're going to do a podcast. I don't know what that is. My kids know that. I don't know. So yeah. I told them I was going down to do a podcast with you. They said, yeah. So yes. you had no idea what we're going to talk about? I have none. That makes two of us. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what we're going to talk about. I'm doing this, so I said I, I want to do it with you. And that's cool. Let's let's make some magic. Let, let's make some magic. So we're just sitting here talking. That's what we're doing. We're, this is just two friends talking. And, and Do we have editing power? <laughs> that's critical for me. Yeah, I, I have editing power. Okay, good, because yeah. I'm on the Internet right now. <laughs> yeah. Can't believe I said that. Yeah, I can take stuff out, but for a price, I'll take, I'll take <laughs> stuff out. So what I want is people to get to know you maybe like I know you. We've been knowing each other how long? A long time, right? Long time, man. Long time. Since the beginning of television. Yeah. Yeah. Was yeah. it like 47, something yeah, like that? something like that. <laughs> we both do talk shows, so we're not supposed to be friends, right? We're supposed to be competitors. Oh, yeah, yeah, man. We, we're like a, like a video game. We're actually mortal enemies. So how come it's never been that way between you and me? You know what, man? Because I think we cut from the same type of cloth. You said something to me a long time ago. You said... You blowing out my candle ain't going to make yours brighter. Mm. And I've used that so many times, and I've always given you credit for sharing that with me. And that's what a lot of people think, man. A lot of people think that if you blow somebody else up, that makes you less. Or if you lessen somebody, that blows you up. No, man. Your candle flicker is your candle flicker. If both of y'all got a candle in the cave and you blow his out, you the same light coming off your candle, partner. Yeah. And I think we both kind of cut from the same cloth. We understood that. So it just made for us to go, you know, a mutual respect for one another and yeah. form the friendship like that. People looked at us like we were crazy because we're not only competitors supposedly on like our shows and we started doing shows together like across networks that never been done before and it works out great and they didn't understand that right you can't go over there and do that but, but see why not though yeah and he can't come on my show with his wife why not it didn't make sense to anybody but i mean you know we still alive we still functioning i think we better for it too yeah, we've had fun. We well, we blew into some place up in other side of town in a helicopter and had a competition up there and stuff. On a golf course, we raced golf course. We had putting competitions. Of course, we flew in on a helicopter. I'm not gonna say whose it was, but <laughs> just know it wasn't mine. So. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Had had to get you in there. <laughs> Man, I was struggling a little bit, but you was in it, so I figured hell, it can't go down today. Yeah, no, it's not gonna go down with me in it. <laughs> That's not a good thing. So, look, where are you from? Originally, man, Welch, West Virginia. I was a country boy. My daddy was a coal miner. This is a true story. We left Welch, West Virginia when I was four because of an incident uh, my father got involved in. And so he sent us to Cleveland. He came later. And uh, every summer I had to go back and work the farm with my uncle and my grandfather because my daddy still had the animals down there, and he had them raise them, and then we'd go down there in the fall and slaughter hogs. And over the summertime, I hold rows of corn in, in the field. I could plow behind a mule named Kate. I was plowing fields, man, at 11 years old. So, really? Yeah, man. Tell me about this incident. Well, my dad is dead, so, 
you know, they can't get him on nothing. But I was supposed to catch a train with my mother. My mother was very fair-complected. She could pass for white. And so she could ride the train. And this is 1960, yeah. 61. And uh, we were in a train station down there in West Virginia. I don't know the exact place it was. But they had colored only water fountains and whites only water fountain. Now I was a little boy and I got away from my mother, went over there, I'm drinking water. I can't read. So I'm drinking from the whites only water fountain. And uh, a woman saw me doing it and grabbed me and slapped me and said, you don't drink from this water fountain. Well, my mama saw that and that was it. My mama jumped on the lady. They called the sheriff. The sheriff came, jumped on my mother. And then they took my mother but they left me in the train station. I just sat there. So an old black porter, he couldn't do nothing at the time. He just waited till it closed. And he asked me what my name was and who, who my mom and daddy was. And I told him. And then he put me on the back of this flatbed truck and drove me to my daddy's house. And my daddy looking at me like, what you doing here? Because you're supposed to be on train with your mama. So the porter told him what happened. And so my mother came in later on that evening. She was visibly upset. And so my daddy told everybody, pack up. Y'all got to leave tomorrow. And so we packed up to go to D.C. to stay with her sisters before we moved over to Cleveland. Uh, a couple of days later, he went to the sheriff's house, and an incident occurred. And then he joined us later. Yeah. That's how we got to Cleveland. That's really a true story. So was there a new sheriff after that? Yeah, yeah, they had to work out some things. They had to bring some, <laughs> get some applications yeah. in. He and the sheriff didn't get along too well when he got over there? No, no. See, my daddy, it's sort of funny, man, because my daddy, he always told me and my brothers, I had two older brothers, right? He told us, he said, you can't talk back to your mama. You can't raise your voice to your mother. See, my father had a simple rule at our house. We don't do back and forth. We just do forth. Ain't no back. So that was, that was out of the question. So you can't talk back to your mama. You can't raise your voice to your mama. You can't ever touch your mama. If you do anything, and do any one of them, I'm going to hurt you real bad. We, we believe that. That applied to everybody, sheriff included. Yeah. So he went over there and it got, got out of hand. So he did get out of town, though. Oh, yeah, he had to. But the yeah. beauty of it was there was no internet. <laughs> you know, fingerprints. Ain't nobody had no iPhone. So it kind of worked out for him. Wasn't any DNA? No. It wasn't none of that. Wasn't no forensic science. You could whoop a man pretty good. If nobody saw it, you could just walk off. They didn't know how to do footprint samples back then. Those were the good old days. Yeah. So you had a footprint in his ass. It was okay. Yeah. Probably a lot of black people had size 11s back then. Yeah. That's probably what happened. But it's interesting because you were actually named after a famous television cop, right? Yeah, Broderick Crawford. Broderick Crawford. From Highway 54, Highway yeah. Patrol. Broderick Crawford. Yeah. I was going to be named, the other choice was Brian Keith. My mother yeah. was going to be named me Brian Keith. So I was destined to be an old white man one yeah. way or the other. That's <laughs> yeah. what, what they was one aiming the for. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like that's what they was aiming for. I was going to be an overweight white man one way or the other. Was... <laughs> yeah, because I remember Robert Crawford, because the thing you remember about him is you you couldn't understand a word he said. Do you remember that? He, yeah. was, he was a real fat guy with jowls, and he'd yeah. get on and he'd get on a microphone and he'd go, blah, 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 blah. Nobody could understand what he said, but then everybody showed up. Yeah. And uh, so he was, he was on Highway Patrol. I can't believe that. Yeah. 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 Did you know who he was? Hell no. <laughs> Nobody ever told you. No, I didn't know. I got older and found out who he was. 
you know, because the show stayed on for a while. And we were watching TV, and my mama said, I named you after him. My daddy would just get up and walk out the room every time <laughs> she said it. So I guess that ain't what he wanted to no, do. No, I guess not. But my older brother was already named after him, so I didn't get that. So you worked in the fields. Yeah. Did you work in the mines? No, no, no. My father that? was a coal miner, though. Yeah. You were an auto worker, though. You worked in the factory? Yeah, after I uh, flunked out of college rapidly. <laughs> I'm talking about I went in and started nose diving at an alarming pace. I had actually been there three years and still had freshman credits. Yeah, I had 12 credits when they finally sent a letter to the house. And After asked, three years? Yeah, I had 12 credits. What were you doing? Well, the way I figured is if you take an incomplete, it didn't affect your grade point. <laughs> so I kept a 3.3 that way. For 12 hours. Yeah, just ain't had no hours. So after I flunked out of college, I worked at Ford Motor Company on the assembly line and uh, foundry. So this was at Kent State? Yeah, Kent State, 1974. But then you went to West Virginia University. No, everybody say I did, but I didn't. You never went? No. The 12 hours didn't get you in there? No, you didn't qualify. You really had. They actually ran checks on you down yeah, there. You, you <laughs> actually had to have a transcript? <laughs> yeah, they had a, trend, a little thing like that followed me around a little bit. Yeah. So what did you do for three years if you only had 12 hours? No, I tell you, man, like college was the greatest experience ever happened to me because you're looking at, and this is honest talk, you're looking at a kid that comes from the country. I had been to an all-black elementary school, all-black junior high, all-black high school. I never attended school with anybody other than black people. No Latinos, no whites, no nothing. So when I went to Kent State, and my first room I stayed in a quad, I had three white roommates. And it was culture shock for them. Because I was deeply immersed in my blackness, so it wasn't, was no shaking me loose. They had to, and it was like really, it was two of my roommates was really cool, man. John McDowell and a guy named Steve from Wooster. But it was really weird because two of my roommates had never, ever talked to a black person. Seriously. Had never talked to a black person. And now they lived with one. So they were in shock. Complete. Yeah, because... You're not exactly laid back. No. Were you the same way then? Yeah, a little bit more. Really? Yeah. So this is your dial down. Oh, This oh, is oh. the dial down, Steve Harvey. Oh, this is I got money, Steve. <laughs> yeah, this is to tone it down before you lose everything to a lawsuit. Okay. I had none of that before. Okay. You know, I was a nice guy, though. Yeah. But I just didn't... Uh, you know, man, I didn't. I didn't know none of the rules, man. I didn't. I didn't know. So I didn't have a lot of social skills, cause everything I did was from my neighborhood. And that don't transfer to college. Yeah. So this is the got money, Steve. Got some fetching up, Steve. Where you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You understand? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I learned. So Kent State really helped me, man, because those guys taught me a lot. You know, I was always gifted as a talker, you know, even though I had a stuttering problem in school. Once I got past that, I really did learn how to be pretty persuasive with conversation. But I learned, man, how to problem solve and negotiate in college because I couldn't do it the way we did it back where I grew up. Everything was a fight where I grew up. College, you can't do that. You, you get <clears throat> suspended. Yeah. Well, you were a boxer, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Did you enjoy that? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was good until I fought this Puerto Rican dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That ended. And I fought Walter Wade. I was 147. I got out of Navy Park Gym. The dude I'm supposed to fight don't show. This Puerto Rican kid in the ring, he won 68. It, I didn't think that mattered. I said, yeah, I'll fight him today. This dude beat, he beat, he beat my ass so bad. This dude beat me. I've never been hit like that in my life. This dude was punching me so hard. He was such a compact fighter. You know, I was dancing and floating, <laughs> moving. Sa, 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 sa. I was touching him with that jab. I was nice. He was just walking, <laughs> walking into me, man. And when he got close, I said, man, this dude just going to take these shots. You know, we got gear on. We got head cut. So he just taking the shots and boom. I'm going to win this fight on points. No sirree. I got in that corner, and he faked, and I did like that, and he came across with a right cross. I stuck my head out the ropes, was looking for my family members. <laughs> I didn't want no part of this. I, I didn't understand why a tile didn't come in at that point because I needed something in that ring because I, I didn't even want back in there, man. You that was the last fight. Talent get you out? But I stuck my head out there, and I was looking like, and I had tears in my eyes because this dude hit, hit me so hard. And my father, get in there and fight him. Fight him. And I went back in there, man. I did everything I could, man. This dude hit me so hard. And I was, uh, that stopped it. That was five years of fighting over in one fight. <laughs> that was enough for you? No, I told my father when I was driving home. I said, hey, Dad, this this is not what I do, clearly. <laughs> clearly, this is not what I you do. You gave it up. So you ain't going to be no fighter. No, nah, did you, were you there? <laughs> <laughs> I told him, I said, no, man, I'm not going to be a fighter. It was a good decision I made because I don't take punches well. Yeah. Whatever happened to that guy? I don't did, know. Did he ever turn into a big fighter or anything? No, I don't think whooping me was the <laughs> launching point for him. <laughs> it was a launching point for me. I don't know what it did for him. That wasn't a stepping stone no, for his was, career? No, it was, it was a way out for me. No, he came in my life to get me here. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know what he's doing now, nothing. Did you ever think you were going to wind up in Hollywood and doing all this stuff because you sold insurance. You, I mean, you you did a lot of jobs. You were a carpet yeah. cleaner. You yeah, were a man. mailman. Yeah. yeah. You carried a mailbag? Yeah, that, that didn't last long because <laughs> I didn't make the probation cut. Oh, that didn't last very long? <clears throat> no, I, uh, a little check incident. <laughs> a lot of stuff happened to me that was kind of game changing for me. You know, I was. They was showing me this mail, and I was delivering mail. It was the first of the month, you know, and in the in the hood, first of the month, everybody gets a check. I got all these checks. and people out on their porch waiting on these checks, man. And, and I just thought that if I'm going to bring you your check, I told people I could bring it early if I could get a cut. They got a little thing. That's something called embezzlement and so fraud and... So they didn't want you bringing the checks anymore? No, they, no, they, that didn't last long at all. Yeah. That was a disaster for me. Cleaning carpets. A.J. Jamal, who's a comedian today, he and I owned a carpet cleaning company together. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he's a Muslim, and we had a rib joint. <laughs> you had a rib joint? Yeah, we, you know, in the hood, you just made it work. He was a Muslim, and we had a barbecue place. He never eaten pork, ever. Ever? But, no. Ended up, had a rib joint in Cleveland. Uh, that closed. People wrapped around the building. And I said, man, we selling a lot of barbecue. Uh, the dude that was in there selling the barbecue was actually selling drugs. 
and the line was for the drugs and not the barbecue. Not the barbecue. No. So that didn't work out. I'm going to tell you a true story, man. My last day of college in 77, we were sitting on the hill with this guy named Arsenio Hall. You know, we went to college together, and we used to call him Trigger because, you know, we called him Trigger because he looked like a horse. And uh, Arsenio was sitting there, and uh, he told everybody was talking about what they was going to do. And Arsenio was getting out. He said, I'm going to go to Hollywood. And everybody started laughing at Arsenio. We were sitting on Taylor Hall Hill, and everybody started laughing at us. He said, I'm going to go to Hollywood. And I was the only one sitting there wasn't laughing. I was going, I said, really? Man, how you going to do that? I'm going to just go, man. I'm going to be a star. Arsenio said in 1977 he was going to be a star. And everybody laughed at him. But I was curious about that, man, because I've been wanting to be on TV since I was 10. How I would get there, I had no idea. And so fast forward probably 1980, 81, something like that. I got a job at this place called Lincoln Electric that I hated, man. I worked midnight shift from 12 to 8 in the morning. I'm sitting on the edge of my bed, and Don Krishna's rock concert, Solid Gold, one yeah, of them, yeah. had the little girls. They said, ladies and gentlemen, got through dancing. Please welcome from Cleveland, Ohio, Arsenio Hall. And, you know, nobody's name Arsenio. <laughs> yeah. And so I went, Arsenio. And Arsenio Hall walked out. And so I grabbed my phone. You know, it wasn't no cell phones. I grabbed a phone. I called my best friend. Hey, man, Trigger on TV. Arsenio's on TV. He had his sleeves pushed up. He was on either Solid Gold or Don Krishna's rock concert. And he was telling jokes. And he was doing this joke about these black pilots on an airplane and the stuff they was doing. And I was sitting there going. The whole time he was talking, I said, he should have said this. He should have said that. He should have said this. And uh, when he walked off, I sat on the edge of the bed and I was crying, man. Tears were just coming down my face because this dude had did what he said he was going to do. And I couldn't believe my life was turning out this way that I wasn't. I wasn't in Hollywood. I, I didn't know how to get on TV. I had flunked out of college and I've been working in a factory. This can't be my life, man. This can't be it. And it was. And Arsenio was on TV. Little did we know that he's actually Nancy Wilson's nephew. And so she hired him to open shows for him. Oh. And that's how he cultivated his skills as a stand-up. Right. Yeah. And this this is actually Arsenio's old stage. Yeah, this is where they did the Arsenio Hall show. See, that's why I'm here telling this story today. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. See, now you know how he got here. Yeah, so for y'all listening, that's Laferne. She's a producer, and she's got a microphone and chiming in. Yeah, because so, I didn't know Yeah, how thanks she got for saying that. Yeah, that, yeah, that helped me out. So you watch him on TV, mm-hmm. and so did that inspire you to come out here? Well, it did, man, but uh, I still didn't know, man, because it was like I forgot the exact year. It could have been 81. I was just I was in this apartment, 80, 81, and uh, it took me a while because— it was in my subconscious so heavy that this guy had actually said he was going to go to Hollywood, and he did it. I thought that was incredible, man. And so fast forward, I sign up. This guy says he knows a way to be rich, and he came to my house, and he showed me this program with Amway. And so I get involved in Amway, and I go to a Amway convention, and all of a sudden it turned out to be the greatest thing ever happened to me because it taught me about positive attitudes. And I started buying books like Dexter Wansel's Winner's Circle, The Power of Positive Thinking by Norman Vincent Peale, The Magic of Thinking Big. They introduced me to that. And then that's when I started putting together a dream board and how to plan and vision. I, knew, I never knew anything about that. 
that. So I immediately started putting down on paper what I wanted to be and actually started believing that it could happen. And that's when I first started writing down, I'm going to be one of the top stand-ups in the country. I'm going to get on TV one day. But I had no clue. So I just kept working jobs, man, until uh, 1985 came along. And um, a guy named A.J. Jamal, I was writing some jokes for him. I didn't know what he was doing with him, but he paid me $10 a joke. And I kept writing jokes. He said, man, you funny. What would you say about this? I write it. He gave me 10 bucks. And one day I'm over his house. This girl named Gladys Jacobs comes over and she says, you're the guy writing his jokes. He's the funniest guy at the comedy club. I said, the funniest guy where? She said, at the comedy club. I said, what's that? She said, you've never been to a comedy club? Why are you writing these jokes for him? I said, for $10. I don't care what he do with them. She said, why don't you tell him yourself? And I said, well, how? And she said, I'm going to come pick you up next Tuesday night and take you to Hilarity's Comedy Club in Cuyahoga Falls. So this is a Tuesday night, October 8th, 1985. She drives me down there, and I'm sitting in the back, and she says, sign up for next week because you're going to be a comedian next week. I said, okay, so I sign up on the list. And they have 10 guys go up, and I'm sitting there, and I'm fascinated. These dudes are telling jokes. She said, how come you're not laughing? Because every joke they told, I was rewriting it. I said, man, he should have said this. I was always trying to think of where it could be funnier. So when I write a joke for Jamal, I can get another $10. Nine people go up. Radio announcer named Stan Pyatt. I know all this because it changed my life. He said, listen, uh, somebody just canceled. We're going to go to next week's list. Where's Steve Harvey? Uh. <laughs> and I, I was, the girl had bought me some chicken wings and a grapefruit juice. And I looked at her and I said... Hey, it's a dude in here got the same name I got. She said, you a stupid son bitch. She said, that's you. I said, I ain't ready. She said, this it. Go on up there. He said, Steve, if you're here, where you at? And they kept clapping, and I'm a sucker for that. They clapping for me? So I ran up on stage, and I walked up on stage, and the first thing I said was, hey, look, I appreciate y'all clapping, but I ain't supposed to be here the next week. And they started laughing. And then I said, I ain't got nothing for you. She said, tell them when you used to box. And I was going to write this joke for Jamal about this dude named Bernard Taylor that I had fought that ended my career. And I told a little boxing story, and the people started laughing. And then I just told something else. I had wrote another joke for Jamal that I hadn't sold him yet, so I told that one. And then I just made up another story and told that. And so I was over with, and I walked off. They bought us back up. They had a clap off. I won amateur night, and they paid me 50 bucks, October 8th, 1985. I went to work the next day, October 9th, 1985, and quit my job. Really? Just like that. I and quit. Where were you working then? Uh, at Commonwealth Life Insurance. Oh, so you working? Li- that's when you were working life insurance. Yeah. So you just quit. You were all in. No, this is. I was born. I knew. Okay. And you have never taken a job outside of entertainment since then. No, sir. I've never done nothing. I've never worked in the mall. Never. Now I suffered. You know what I mean. First year I made like three thousand dollars. Second year I made about fifty two hundred. Third year I made almost seven thousand dollars. And my ex wife wasn't happy with none of that. And I drove home one day from a gig. I'd been gone 13 weeks. I drove up and the house, we was renting this little house. It was boarded up and they were gone. And so, you know, I went up to my in-law's house and they were angry because I'd been gone all this time. So I had another gig in two days. I didn't see my kids and my wife. I drove back out to the gig. Next thing you know, I'm homeless, man. I got nothing. I got nowhere to go. You know, so I suffered, but I, I was in the business, though. Yeah. I was in it. So what were you making a night? When you would go on the road and go to these comedy clubs, how much money were you making? Between 50 and 75. 
50 and 75 bucks. Yeah. It's the, the road gigs was 50. Everything I did locally up until that was $25. 25 bucks. So you would go for 50 bucks. But the crazy part about me, I would take the gig anywhere. I would drive from Cleveland to Mobile, Alabama for $75. But you know, gas back then was 45 cents a gallon. And I would go and then I would stay down there because I didn't have enough. And if I put together three gigs and I made 150, I was seeing $100 home because I couldn't put it in the tank and drive all the way back to Cleveland and then the next gig in Florida. So I was sending 100 home, and I kept the 50. And I had an answering machine in my mama's attic, and that's how I checked, see if I had gigs. And every time I got a chunk, I would send it home to my ex-wife and kids, and I just kept the 50. And that, you you can make 50 a week, you're going to be homeless. Yeah. Yeah, that'll yeah. get you out pretty quick. Because that was in the 80s, right? Yeah, 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 man. Was there a time that it made a big jump when you went from like $50 a gig to serious money, or did it stair-step? Yeah, yeah, man, it stair-stepped. What I had did was I had gotten pretty prolific at comedy clubbing as a host. And what I did was I bought a box of those golf pencils and index cards, and even as the opening act, I would pay a waitress a dollar to put the index cards at every table and the little golf pencil. And when I would go up on stage, I was going to say, hey, look, I don't want you to do nothing, but if you like me tonight, write your name and address on the index card and just leave it there for me. At the end of the night, i go collect all of them. When I would come back to that town, you know, stamps was a dime. I would go through my file, pick out the 50 cards that said they liked me, and i just use their own address, their own handwriting. I just put, hey, I'm at the comedy club October 3rd through the 9th. Hope you come back. They would come back and go, hey, man, we here. And so I start, I started making myself a draw that way. And so it took uh, Bruce Ayers down at the comedy club to say, hey, man, you an opening act, you a feature act, which was 30 minutes, and all these people coming to see you, I'm going to headline you. And Bruce Ayers gave me my first headlining gig for $1,000 a week. Now, that was years later now. Just, I didn't get that to probably 89, 90 maybe. Really? Yeah. So it was 89 or 90 before you made $1,000 a week? Oh, yes, sir. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah. Wow. Hurting, man. But, you know, man, I was overjoyed because I was doing what I knew I was born to do, you know. So. Well, it's a different kind of currency, right? I mean, because you're getting the money, but you're doing what your passion was. You, so, you felt it. And it's, it's like, man— a thousand bucks, but I was meeting headliners that was making twenty five hundred, five thousand a week. Hey man, the way I met Sinbad, I met Sinbad on a park bench in Birmingham, Alabama. He was sitting at a park bench. Our Sinbad was big in comedy clubs. I'd see his picture on walls, and I was at the park because I was gonna stay there that night in All my right. car. And I pull up and I see Sinbad and I walk out of the car and say, hey, man, I'm Steve Harvey. I know you're Sinbad. Hey, hey. So he started clutching his bag. He said, yeah, 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 what you need? Because he had just gotten his money in cash in a garbage bag. I didn't notice at the time. So I'm walking up to a guy with a garbage bag. I said, what you doing? He said, I'm going to catch a bus, man. I'm going to Florida. I said, yeah, I'm a comedian, too. He said, where your next gig at? I said, Florida? <laughs> I didn't have no gig, man. I'm talking to Sinbad. He said, uh, hey, man, I give you $200. You drive me to Florida. 200 Really? So he got in the car, and I drove Sinbad 
from Birmingham down to West Palm Beach, Florida for $200, which was huge for me. And he schooled me the whole way down. Really? He taught the business to me, man. And uh, he told me he was a draw. He told me how he did it. And I just listened, man. He, and Sinbad was probably one of the most important people for me at that time because he gave me hope. Because in his trash bag, he had $32,000. Seriously? Cash. 32000 bucks in his yeah. trash bag. Yeah. Sitting in the park. And he lucky. He <laughs> is lucky. I'm about 30 years old right now because 17, he would have been missing $32,000. Yeah. yeah. He would have been missing that money. <laughs> oh, yeah, partner. That, that would have been a big up for me. Yeah. But I had a vision and a plan by the end, you know. So I just said, okay, cool. Let me, I'm going to figure out how to make this. So when you went to Florida with him, this was what year? Probably maybe around 89, So this 90. is when you started to actually started to make some money soon yeah. after this. Yeah, after I listened to him. Yeah. And Bruce Ayers gave me a shot at the Comedy House in Birmingham. He gave me $1,000. I did so well that he bought me back four months later. I, I go, I wrote a whole new show, so I had another 45. And every time he bought me, I had a new 45. And I, was, I could write jokes, man, because I was by myself. What was the most important thing Sinbad told you? Was there something that stuck out that changed the way you approached the game? Don't turn down no gigs. Take them wherever. He said, look, man, this business right here, what good is it you to sit at home? Because there's no school for comedy. You can take lessons for everything. You can learn how to fly a plane, fix a car. You can take acting lessons, drum lessons, saxophone, piano lessons. You can go to school to be a doctor. You can learn how to be an engineer. You can go to school to be a cameraman, director. Ain't no school for comedy. There is nothing you can go do to become a comedian. You have to be born this way. So the only school for comedy is the stage. You have to go there as many times as you can. He says, so if somebody offer you 125 for the week and you've been getting 250, you're not going to go get the 125? So you're going to sit at the house and get zero? Or you're going to go to school and get 125? He said, man, they're paying you to learn the craft. Never forget that. And that was it. I took every gig. I didn't care what it paid. If I was off, I took the gig. That was the greatest advice he told me. That hustle has remained in me since then. Yeah, I'll vouch for that because <laughs> we know each other, I, yeah. and I know that. You're a hardest-working guy ever. I mean, you, you do, and when you do it, you're all in. I'll give yeah. you that. You are all in on everything you do. And, you know, Phil, we've talked about this because we, we know each other really closely. So I'm not the smartest guy, but you're not going to out-hustle me. You're not going to outwork me. So I may not make what everybody else make on a gig here and there, but I'm going to put them together to where I can have something. And that's that's been a, a blessing for me and a curse for me, you know, that I've probably done some deals. I would have been better if I was a better businessman. I could have made a lot more, but the hustle side of me still, I'd rather make something than nothing. Yeah, you came out okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm all right. Yeah, I think you're all right. <laughs> I saw you out on the boat a couple of times <laughs> in the Mediterranean. I yeah. was there. I yeah. was there. Yeah, we tied up to each other. Yeah, yeah. You party a little bit different, though. You got your friends have money. That's yeah. different, you know. Yeah, right. No, yeah, yeah, he did. I met him. Yeah, I think your boat was pretty good size. Took all I had, but I was there. Yeah, you can pour mouth later. So you get to Hollywood when? When did you finally get here and do a gig in Hollywood? 
Was it a show? What, what did you do? No, the, my first moment in Hollywood was a TV show called Me and the Boys on ABC. I had gotten on Showtime at the Apollo in 91. Uh, that was that was my turn back moment. I was talking to Deion Sanders one time, and he said, man, everybody in their life got a turn back moment. Everybody has a moment where they could turn around and go back. He said, the problem is most people do. He said, so what was your turn back moment? And I was in a hotel. I was homeless, and I was washing up in the hotel. And I used to like to go to, like, Ritz Carlton's and Four Seasons to wash up because they had them bathroom doors that went all the way to the ceiling and floor. So it was private. They couldn't look up under there. And they had towels rolled up in baskets. So the way I would bathe is I would get the basket, run hot water under all the towels in the basket, take them in the stall, shut the door, and wash up. Then I wait, make sure nobody was out there. I go out there and get the other basket, <laughs> run hot water under, take them, then I rinse off. And that was my bath. And so I made sure I always stayed in parking lots with hotels that had that. One morning, man, a convention was in town. And I had got all of the washcloths under the hot water, and I took the soap and I was soaping up. But a convention had let out for breakfast. And when I got soaked up, people just kept coming in. They just kept, they just kept, and they never stopped. And they just kept coming, man. I was going, Jesus, man. And the soap is starting to dry on me. And I let the toilet seat down, and I'm sitting on the lid, man, and I just started crying. I said, I can't take this no more. I'm going to quit. I'm going to call my father, ask him, can I come back home and stay up in the attic for three months till I get a job? I'm going to quit. That was your turn back moment. That was my turn back moment. And so uh, it, they just dried. The people never stopped coming. So I just put my clothes on, man. I had dry soap all over me, man. And I was crying. I got in my car and I went to the pay phone. And I was going to call my father. But I was in like uh, Pensacola, Florida, I think. And that was about 15 hours from Cleveland. So I said, well... Let me see if I can call my answer machine, see if I can pick up a gig before I quit so I have about 50 or $75 before I call my dad. I call, and uh, I get a message. Hey, Steve Harvey, this is Chuck Sutton with Showtime at the Apollo. We saw a terrific tape of you. We love you. We think you're hysterical. If you can get to uh, Harlem at Apollo Theater on Sunday, we'll put you on TV. Wait a minute, man. This is all I've been waiting on. I'm... I'm on TV. Click, call me back at this number if you're available Sunday. It's Thursday. I got $35. I can't make it to New York. So I hang up the phone, and I'm sitting there, man, in tears. Now I'm really crying because a dude for the first time called me and said I could be on TV. But, dog, I don't have no way to get there. I said, man. I've been wanting to be on TV, man. Dude, give me a shot. I got $35. I got no friends I can call, nothing, man. I left Cleveland. I left everybody. So I said, man, call your father, man, in this mess right now. I said, hold a minute. Let me call and see if he said this Sunday. So I called back. He said, Chuck Sutton. This Steve Harvey, this Chuck Sutton saw a hysterical tape over. Look, I got an opening for you Sunday night in Harlem at the world-famous Apollo Theater. If you could make it, call me back at this number. I said, yeah, he said this Sunday. And I got ready to hang up. But you remember back in the day, if you had another uh, voicemail, when you put the code in, it would beep. Boop, boop. 
that means you had another message. So I clicked over to the second message. He said, Steve Harvey, this is Tom Sober with the Comedy Caravan. I don't know how close you are to Jacksonville, Florida, but I got a date for you tomorrow night. Pays 150 bucks. If you can get to Bay Meadows Drive, Punchline Theater, I got 150 for you tomorrow. Just a one-night replacement. I'm in Pensacola. I'm three and a half hours away. I called Tom Sobel. I said, man, I can get there. Boom. I drive. I can't call Chuck yet because I got to make sure this is real. Because you get to a lot of gigs. Well, the guy showed up. So I get there. I do really well. The guy pays me the 150 He says, listen, you're better than the guy we got coming in. If you stick around tomorrow night, I'm going to give you another 150 That's Saturday. I got $300. This is more important right now than anything. So I said, yeah. So then Saturday, I called Chuck Sutton. I said, hey, man, is that gig still available? He said, it certainly is. But I almost booked it completely up. But I'll put you on the last show. I said, I'll be there. So I made the 150 that night. I called Eastern Airlines. that used to be an airline. They had a special right. from Jacksonville, $99 to New York. Everything I own in two bags. I fly to New York. I get there at 11 o'clock in the morning. I don't go on to 11 at night. But I, I got to get to New York. This $99. So I, I get to the back door of the theater. I said, I'm the comedian tonight. He said, okay, we'll see you tonight. I said, man, I ain't got nowhere to go, man. I, 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 I'm, it's 12. Can I just go sit in there? He said, man, I can't have you wandering around this theater in here. I said, man, I promise you, if you just let me in here, I ain't going to move. He said, well, the comedians is on the sixth floor. He said, do not leave that room. He said, man, I'm going to have to hurt you if you leave that room. He's a big-ass dude, and so I believed him. <clears throat> So I went upstairs on sixth floor. I'm starving, man. So about three, I come down. He said, hey, man, didn't I tell you not to come out that room? Now, it's a bathroom up there. What you want? I said, man, if I could just buy me a piece of chicken or something, man. I said, I don't go on to 11. I got to eat. He said, man, go to store and come back. I went to store and come back. I go upstairs. The comedian started coming in because the first show started at six. So I'm in the room upstairs, and I meet this dude named Dwayne Johnson. I meet another dude named D.L. Hughley. I meet this guy named Jamie Foxx. We all sitting there. We don't know each other. We introducing it. We scared. This is the Apollo Theater. Oh, yeah. They blew you off the stage there. <sighs> it was ugly, man. So the show started, and uh, Dwayne Johnson got booed. D.L. Hughley did good. Jamie Foxx got booed. I'm next. <laughs> <laughs> I go down there, man, and uh, I kill. I got stand ovation. And um, I walked off stage. He said, no comedian has done that on this stage in years. He said, we're going to have you back. He called me back in two weeks. And then after that, uh, Sinbad was the host of the Apollo Theater. Mark Curry was the host of Amateur Night. He had just gotten a TV show called Hanging with Mr. Cooper. So he figured he didn't need the Apollo no more. They said, we need you to come and host Amateur Night one night to see if you can survive the crowd. I went up there and killed. And I stayed on stage. That was the key. I stayed on stage. I would not let the warm-up act do it. I kept the crowd hot. And they loved me. And I became, I ended up being the longest running host of Showtime at Apollo. But my turn back moment almost happened to me. And I almost quit. Had I went to my father's house, I wouldn't be sitting here today. 
But, you know, God has a funny way of, uh, you know, my mom was Sunday school teacher, so I just knew, you know, God ain't never been late. He's never too late. And uh, I just hung in there, man, and I didn't turn back. And that's what started it all, Showtime to Apollo. They kept it rolling. Yeah, man. Did you get a decent paycheck for that? See, people thought I was making a lot of money. I had a lot of friends after that. But I was just making 1100 a show. But 1100 a show for me? Yeah. Dog, I was be in a comedy club all week if I could get a thousand. So one show, and we was doing four shows a night. So I would finish the week with twelve thousand dollars, stuff like that. And then uh, Chuck Sutton got me on Just for Laughs. I went to New York and got Just for Laughs. I went to uh, Montreal and got on Just for Laughs. First night I'm on stage, ABC sees me, tells me to come to their hotel room Friday. I go to their hotel room, Mike Bartlett that did business affairs for ABC, Robin Flynn, and another lady pulled me in the room, and the guy said, listen, we're just going to do this quick because a lot of people are going to want to talk to you. Here's a check for $50,000. It's called a holding deal. If you accept it, you can't talk to anybody else. I, I got a pen because <laughs> I'm, I don't know, who, <laughs> what, how much did you, I thought, you know, I don't know who this white dude is. I'm going to do this 50 though. I'm, I'm going to do this 50, and I don't know how I'm going to work it out. I probably ain't going to ever see this dude no more, but I'm going to try to get this check cashed. If I get this cashed, my life finna change. Never heard of $50,000. And so I signed the paperwork in the room. I was with this girl. She said, you need a lawyer. I said, what you need to do <laughs> is mind your damn business. This is what you need to do. And why are you talking anyway? Me and you ain't going, this is not going anywhere. Because obviously you don't make quality business decisions. So you and I have no future. <laughs> she was really right. I needed a lawyer. But I needed 50000 more than I needed a lawyer. Yeah. So I signed in that room and they cut me a check on Friday night at the Four Seasons in Montreal. For fifty grand. For fifty grand. And I belong to ABC for fifty grand. And it cleared. Yeah, it cleared. And so I didn't care if they called me. I got fifty thousand dollars. Fifty thousand thousand dollars nineteen ninety-three. Fifty grand. And you're thinking, this is it. I've arrived. Fifty? <laughs> thousand. Yeah, even if I ain't arrived. I don't think I've been here. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm rich a little bit. Yeah. But they did call. They called. Because you did a show. They gave me me and the boys. And yeah. I came out here and uh they said, Man, you're terrific. This is gonna be great. We're gonna build a show around you. Steve Steve uh Tower had a video store called uh Tower Video, and I had three kids, three boys. I was single. My wife had passed and her mother was living with us, Madge Sinclair. Bless her. She was my mother-in-law. She taught me how to act. When I got there, I didn't know how to act. I'd never read a script in my life. They gave me a script feel. It says, Steve crosses to refrigerator. I was reading that. <laughs> Steve crosses to the refrigerator. I was reading the stages. They were mortified. And so they had these, since I had kids on the show, they had grown-ups sitting in for the kids because they were in school. So this black chick named Cassie Davis who is huge on the Tyler Perry platform. She plays Van's wife on all the shows. Right. She came to me. She said, uh, she said, where are you from? I said, Cleveland. She said, what, 
you from the country, ain't you? I said, yeah. She said, what? I said, watch West Virginia. She said, I'm from Holly Spring, Mississippi. And then she looked at me and she said, oh, this the most money you ever made? I said, yeah. She said, well, they're going to fire you. <laughs> They're going to take all this money from you if you don't learn how to act. She said, where did you learn how to act? I said, I ain't. She said, well, why would you take the job? I said, because they gave me $50,000, and they're paying me 45000 a week. She said, well, they ain't going to keep paying you this. I said, well, how many of you think I can get out of them? <laughs> <laughs> she said, after this pilot, they're not putting this on TV. So she introduced me to Kim Field's mother, Chip Hurd. We got finished with rehearsal. They said, well, Steve, just settle down tomorrow. Relax. You were a bit nervous. We could tell. And I could tell they were in the meeting over there in the corner going, this guy sucks. He's the worst. Chip Heard, her name was Chip Fields, met me at my hotel on um, Avenue of the Stars. And she sat with me from 4.30 that evening to 6 a.m. the next morning and made me go over line by line by line and taught me how to act. I was I was talking like I was on stage because I thought that's what they wanted. Hey, what you doing over there by that dope? Boy, you crazy. She said, do you have a regular voice? I said, no, they hired me because I'm a comedian. She said, act like you would talk to if you were talking to one of your kids. And I didn't know. And she taught it to me. And the next day I came to work and everybody was going, it's the most amazing turnaround I've ever seen. And if it wasn't for Chip, she came on my talk show last year. I just stood there crying, man. I hugged this woman and just cried. She was the only reason I stayed on that show. How long did the show go? One year. Yeah. But I had made uh, 45,000 times 22. Yeah. You, and, but I didn't know you were supposed to pay taxes. That was Nobody mentioned that? Mm-mm. Once you cut my check, I figured you had took what you wanted. So, yeah, I I was I spent a lot of money. I I didn't know, and it only lasted one year because I was on TV with my buddy Tim Allen, who had Home Improvement, mm-hmm. and they had a deal with the executive producer Matt Williams that if his show was in the top ten, he could own the time slot behind it, which was me and the boys. My show finished number twenty one, highest rated new show on ABC. But he won the time slot, so they came and told me they were taking my show off there. They replaced me with Tony Danza, Hudson Street. So this is going to come back again. I finished 21. They put Tony Danza on Hudson Street. He finished number 66. Mm-hmm. That was a trade-off. Yeah. And so I was off TV. But that wasn't the last time you were on TV because, you. I mean, there was another sitcom you did, right? Yeah, the Steve Harvey show. Called Steve. Yeah. They came to me, uh, Ted Harbour came to me and I went to him after they took me off TV and I said man I sure want to own a house and I have found a house in Dallas Texas that cost one million dollars but I didn't have credit and so a dude said if you give me a third down three hundred thousand I give you this house and me and you work the payments out ourselves I said how long I got he said you got to the end of the week I got on the plane flew to LA Set at the ABC offices over there for two straight days, waiting to see Ted Harvey. This lady said, Mr. Harvey, you can't just meet him like that. I said, I got to. And I went in the hallway to get some water. He came out of the office. He said, Steve, what are you doing here? I said, Ted, how you doing? He said, come on down and talk to me. So I said, man, I need a, a holding deal. He said, well, didn't Fred Whitehead tell you? I'm offering you $125,000. I said, that ain't enough. He said, that's not enough. 
He said, it's just a holding deal. We're going to explore. I said, I need it bigger than that. He said, what's going on? I said, look, man, I want to buy a house. I said, if you cut me a check for $300,000, I can go buy this house. I said, that's the least, man. Y'all took me off TV. I was the number one show y'all had. And he looked at me, man. He said, come come here tomorrow at 12 o'clock. I came back the next day. Ted Harbor gave me a check for 300000 He's the best guy in television that I know. I flew back to Dallas, bought my first house I ever owned. Really? was a million-dollar house. Wow. That was the first house I ever owned. I ain't know nothing about it. Taxes or all that, but I owned a house. And um, then the WB was born, and they sold my deal to the WB. And that's how I got the show, the sitcom with me and Cedric the Entertainer that lasted seven years. Yeah, that was a good run, right? Oh, it was really good, man. Yeah, and you made some serious money off of that because that stayed on the air and— Went to syndication. Yeah, went to syndication. Got some syndication money, started adding it up. Doing the right thing. Seemed like I can stay on TV seven years. Look like about to cut off with me. Yeah. <laughs> you think that's it? I think seven. They go. She's made enough. Yeah. Well, at this point, I mean, you're hosting everything on television. I mean, you're not hosting my show, but other than that, <laughs> you're hosting your radio show, your talk show, Family Feud, Celebrity Family Feud, Little Big Shots, the yeah. spinoff Little Big Shots, Forever Young. Mm-hmm. Steve Harvey, Thunderdome, mm-hmm. Showtime at the Apollo since 2015, the Miss mm-hmm. Universe pageant. I mean, this is what you call piecing it together? Yeah, that's hustling. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's Sinbad. Don't turn down no gigs, man. Yeah. Well, you're piecing it together, that's for sure. Yeah. Are you having fun? I mean, man, really, uh, how can I beat this? You know, guys like us, we wake up every day to do what we was born to do. I mean, Look, man, and then they cut a check. Yeah. At, at the end of the day, I don't care what you do, man. I'm just telling jokes, really. You know, my radio show, I play music and tell jokes. Family Feud, I'm just telling jokes. I don't really, I don't care about these questions and answers. No, you, you're not going to know them. It's, Family Feud is a show about surveys. Who tunes in to see a survey? <laughs> exactly. Top 100 people. What's your favorite ingredient in buttermilk? Candy. <laughs> See, now me and you need to have a discussion. Butter, yeah. milk. <laughs> now that them ain't on the board. I, candy. And oh my God. Why did you say candy? I, I don't know, Steve. The little yellow pieces in there? No, that's butter. <laughs> and then I just turned it into a comedy show, and that's all it is. And we get paid to do this. So yeah. I'm having a great time. Yeah. People don't know, but you do several of those a day, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, don't. <laughs> I ain't made none of this easy, you know what I mean? Yeah. I do three talk shows a day. I do. When I first did Family Feud, so I could pack it in my schedule, we did it in Orlando because I told them I wasn't coming out to L.A. to work because my radio show was in New York and Atlanta. And I'm not coming out here because of the cost of living to do Family Feud. So they did it in Orlando. I would get off the radio show Thursday night and fly to Orlando. I taped Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in Orlando at Universal. I taped eight shows Friday, eight Saturday, and eight Sunday. I had a 20-minute lunch. I taped eight episodes in one day. I did 24 shows in a weekend. And how many did you do a year? I mean, 180. Wow. Every weekend, I did 24 shows. So the way I did it was I would pick out 12 suits, 
I would take the first suit and I would put a, a shirt and tie with it. Then after I liked it, I would take that shirt and tie and put another shirt and tie with it. So when I got, and I would do that with 12 suits. So when I got down there, they didn't have a wardrobe person for me that knew how to iron the clothes I wore back then. My pants was about this wide. They didn't even fit on the ironing board. So this little white lady was traumatized. It hangs off the ironing board. I'll do it. So I would wait, go in late Friday night and started ironing my clothes. And I'd hang them on the rack in order. So I would just go change a suit, shirt and tie, change it. And then once I did the 12, I would start back at the beginning like I had a lot of wardrobe. And I just, boom, 12 and 12. And that's how I did the 24 shows of the weekend. I would crawl into work Monday morning and be dead. Man. How, how much time between shows? How long would it take you to turn? I just, as soon as I could change. So 10 minutes, you're back out. 15 tops. And then, like, they started, came up with this thing where they changed the audience. It took them 30 minutes to change the audience. I started taping at 10 a.m. I wouldn't finish till midnight. Wow. It's hard to stay fresh, right? It was hard, man. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. Okay. Now, people are going to be mad at me if I don't ask, if I don't ask about the uh, Miss Universe pageant when... <laughs> the, the wrong name. I know the backstory on this, but you got to tell people. <laughs> you know, man, I'm a really bright guy. Because you got screwed. Oh. You got screwed on that. Well, they jammed me. It, it, see, it, it can never happen again, but I learned something. So we had rehearsal, and we're rehearsing for two days. I got it. I got it. They had decided the way they were going to do it since they had just bought this. They had bought Miss Universe from Donald Trump. They had just bought it. And so they had decided what they were going to do was, instead of doing that baffling thing at the end, and first runner up is, and they announced his name, and now a woman standing here who's got the crown and you ain't said it yet. So they said, what we'll do is, We'll do the second runner-up. It'll have three girls out here. We'll do the second runner-up, and then we'll just have the first runner-up and the winner standing there. But on your way down, we want you to say, whoever does not win, the first runner-up will take over the duties of Miss Universe and the fact that she will not have the ability to do so. So we practice it, I can't tell you how many times. Second runner-up and the new Miss 2015 Universe is, and then the name. Well, the lady that used to run the old pageant, she decides we're not doing that. So she puts a third name on the card. Don't tell nobody. No one knows this but this woman. But here's the problem. The teleprompter don't know it. So I do the third runner-up. I got two people standing here. I got Miss Columbia and the Philippines. The camera, the teleprompter says, and I got a, I, I got an earbud in. I got director talking to me. The teleprompter says, and the new 2015 Miss Universe is just like we've been practicing. Well, little do I know, on this card, this woman that put the winner in the corner, my thumb is on the, the name of the winner. I never saw the third name because we never... Look for it. So when they handed me the card, and I look at it, it ain't but two names on the card. So I said the first one. So then I said, and the new 2015 Miss Universe is? He said, hold, hold, 
Miss Columbia. Miss Columbia! <sighs> Great job, Steve. Go to the back and set up for the finale. Cool. I walk in the back. We back there two minutes and 38 seconds. <laughs> the dude in my ear says, you said the wrong name. What I said to him <laughs> is not for television, podcast, internet, nothing. I put together a combination of profanity that was one of the most beautiful combinations. If I was a fighter, this would be on the top plays on ESPN. I really had it in that night. That dude, that's how it ended. He said, okay, oh, this is horrible, my God. How did he say the wrong name? And my God, it works for me, said, H. How did they do that? Give me the card. Look at the card, man. It's down here. He said, and my, you could see my hand over this thing. I said, man, I'm going to go straighten it out. The guy says to me, we'll straighten it out tomorrow in the media. <laughs> Mr. Bright Idea said, no, we're going to straighten it out right now. I'm walking back down there. All I hear is, what are you doing? What are you doing? I'm going back out here to straighten it out. I went out there, man, and I took all of the heat. I showed him the card. I even turned the card around and showed it to him. My mistake. That was, uh, I, I kid you not, man, you called me right after that. This is how cool we are. He called me that morning. He said, you okay? He said, I know how live television works. He said, somebody didn't protect you, my friend. I said, I know, man. But I, I, I didn't even... It was so nasty, man. It it got ugly. At the press conference, I was a reporter yeah. from Columbia. This dude right here, man, that's when the other side of me came out. He kept going, how could you do such a thing? This has never happened before. I said, well, it just happened. <laughs> it, 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 it might not have, but it just happened. I said, hey, man, it was just an honest mistake. I said, I didn't see the card. It was a mistake. And he kept hammering me, man. This dude from Columbia just kept hammering me. And I just couldn't take it no more. And I said, uh, who the hell are you talking to, man? Because I'm through with you. You know, I'm trying to be nice. And that's when the guy from IMG, Steve, 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 let's just go. No, 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 no. I want to know who you're talking to. See, because you're talking to me like you're going to do something. I really don't fight anymore. But, you know, I figured... Tonight be a good night. Start back, you know. Yeah, you're I, gonna start back. Yeah, might as well be the night. Got this tuxedo. I got, you know, I'm pretty popular right now. So, uh, they got me out the room, and uh, I didn't know how bad it was until the next morning. And man, when I was walking to get in the car, I mean, we love you anyway, Steve. Hang in there. It's okay. Oh my God, it's him. There he goes. Then my social media feed. See, I don't. I can't read Spanish, but I know cussing when I see it because it was on all of them had the same. And when I landed uh, back in Atlanta, man, and I went home, it was on everything. And you know what hurt me, man? Uh, the part that hurt me was a friend of mine on CNN, a guy I thought was my friend. He was on that man just lacing me. I mean, who does that? Is this the most boneheaded thing you've ever seen? He he was lit me up. And that, that was the only one that really hurt me, man, because I had had the guy on my show. I talked with him. 
And he was just lacing me, man. I was, I was, I was in a lot of trouble that day. Well, that's why I called you that morning, cause I, yeah, because I, I know what happens. I, I know you had, you had to have at least two different things being told you at one time, because I know how that sets up. And I know I told Robin at the at, at the second it happened, I said he's gotten. Two pieces of information at the same time. I'll guarantee you somebody is in his ear telling him what he said or somebody's in that prompter and he's reading it Bro. one of the two because he doesn't know or give a shit who won. He, I got he's, no, just, he's just saying what they're telling him. Bro, that was exactly right because I'm a really smart guy. I had done the whole show perfectly. You think I wait to the game-winning shot? To not, it's simple. All I got to do is read, read, and say what he tell me to say. He told me, and when I said it, Great job, Steve. Go to the back and set up. Nobody knew nothing. Two minutes and 38 seconds later, he says, you said the wrong name. <laughs> Blankety blank, the blank, 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 blank. <laughs> Combination, mother blankety blank, blank. All I, said, all I heard it was, all he said was, oh, my God. <laughs> That was I left him calling on the Lord. That's how good a cussing I put out. When you just when you getting cussed out and you just go, oh my Lord. That's when you just need him. And uh yeah, man. But you you right there. This was the first dude to call me was you, man. The first dude. And, and it made me feel better, but that week was that week was dark, man. It's pretty dark for me. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I, you know, come on. I mean, we're not curing cancer here. We're giving somebody a trophy, bro. You know, I tried to soften it at the press conference. I said, you know, I just said the wrong name. Do you know people are still Columbia? I can't even fly over Colombia no more. That, my plane discount. I can't drink Colombian coffee anymore. I think they're still trying to get me. I had a guy came to my show, my talk show, and said, "Man, he said I'm from Colombia. Yeah, we still don't like you down there. You still got problems down there." I said, "Yeah, probably do." He said, man, you said the wrong name. You you gave away a crown to the Philippines. I said, hey, hey, partner, what you tripping for? You're from Colombia. I said the wrong name. We got the wrong Miss Universe. I said, we're in America. We got the wrong president. <laughs> <laughs> Who's stuck here? <laughs> yeah. Of course, you don't want to piss off the cartel at the same time. And But you know, man, you're absolutely right. Because like, I was getting rocks in my home in Atlanta with notes on them thrown over my gate. Ugh. And so to this day, to this day, I have 24-hour armed guards at my house in Atlanta. To this day, yeah. front and back. Yeah. I mean, man, they were throwing rocks <clears throat> over my wall at my gate. And, you know, I've met a lot of really nice Colombian people since then, but it's, it's some people from there. It was hot. Yeah. Hot. Yeah, that that got out of control, but this too shall pass, right? I mean, yeah, I was hoping. Yeah. So, all right, I got a few things I got to ask you, and then we'll be done. What do you think about all this political correctness? You know, man, um, it's hard now because it's tough on a comedian. Right? It's it's preventing me from going back. I thought about going back and do one more special. I actually have thought about going back because I have so much to say over the past six years on my talk show. I've I've got some stuff, man, that's in here that's so funny. But political correctness 
political correctness is so rampant now that everybody's looking for a way to get their feelings hurt. And so anything you say is offensive to someone. And all we need is one person because now I'm in a sponsor-driven business. All my shows are sponsor-driven. And so now if somebody calls in and, and gets to rally and cry, he hurt me. And one sponsor pool, the whole empire can crumble off of a joke. And so it's it's ugly to the point where you, you can't be funny anymore about who. Who can you be funny about? You can't say nothing, man, about nobody because they rally so quickly because of the Internet. They can just go get a bunch of signatures that ain't even real. And next thing you know, you off the air, man. So, yeah, because you get advertisers spooks. Man. Right? They spooks say, well, I'm afraid of this, so I got to do something different. I got to back off. You can only talk about yourself and nobody is full comedy specials that interesting. Yeah, yeah. If you can't talk about yourself for an hour and a half on a comedy special, you're not that funny. You yeah. got to talk about something. Yeah. You know, and so what can the jokes be about now? It's gotten out of control. I did a joke about spanking my kids on my talk show. Oh my God. Oh my God. You spank your children? Yeah, I said it as a joke, but. Yeah, they're all grown. It was a joke. Yeah, and, and they're all. None of them are imprisoned, and all of them are doing really well. The mass weapons work. They work for me. And no, man, so that's crazy. Uh, I have some alligator shoes. I get a call from Peter, and this is one that really pissed me off. He said, you're wearing alligator shoes. You know what I told him? I said, and alligators kill kids. So I kill alligators. Never heard from him again. Never heard from him. Because it was a great response. Yeah. Alligators kill kids. Yeah, just recently. Yeah, so you should be shoes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's a that's a point of view. I thought it was good. It yeah. can't, you know, I don't wear fur or nothing like that, but yeah. alligator, snake. Yeah. What entertainer or comedian do you admire the most? Living or and dead? Yeah. Richard Pryor was the king for me. That dude, man, he formulated comedy the way you see it today in so many aspects. The guys that's out there now, I mean, I was, I love George Carlin, man. I love the way Carlin did what he did. George Carlin was a huge influence. As a kid, man, it was Jonathan Winters, Red Buttons, Red Skelton. Another, well, probably had to take a drink. Bill Cosby was a big influencer. <laughs> Just another drink. Liquor, please. Alcohol. Alcohol. Uh, but in comedy, it was a huge influence, you know. Um, in comedy, huge right. influence. Today, though, the comedy has changed greatly. Dane Cook is big to me. But Kevin Hart is uh, one of the guys. But uh, Eddie Murphy changed the game for us. Richard Pryor was a game changer for us. And so we all benefited from that. The Kings of Comedy was because of Raw. The Kings of Comedy was because of Pryor. And Kings of Comedy was probably the biggest comedy event. 44,000 people? At the Georgia Dome. Georgia Dome? 44,000 people. Came in. 
The Queens performed first, the Queens of Comedy, Monique, Adele Givens, Samora, and Laura Hayes. Took an intermission, and they brought the Kings out. I entered the Georgia Dome on a horse-drawn carriage with all the Queens dressed in white, and I was standing in the middle of the carriage coming from the back. That's how they brought me to the stage. The greatest single moment of my life coming to the stage on a horse and carriage with 44,000 people screaming. That was a big, I got to get tape of that. Somebody got to have that, man. Yeah, that had to be a kick. Oh, man. And that was a great show. Yeah. It was a great Let me ask you something. You ever thought about doing it, man? Doing what? Comedy. Well, I, yeah. Yeah. What Philly, do you think? Well, you got great sense of humor, man. You you be saying some stuff, man. You 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 in that line of a Jerry Clary type guy. You you yeah. you know him? No. Jerry Clower, you gotta get some tapes of Jerry Clower. He's a country guy, never used any profanity. Oh, I know Jerry Clower, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Jerry Clower. Udale, Marcel, all them, man, that that country who my father and them loved that dude. Yeah. I was a big fan of him. But I think, man, you got you have a skill set though. Because you got timing, man. You was born with timing. It's different. It's different. Like I said, I'd never follow you. That's for damn sure. I don't My mama re- didn't raise no fool. I don't recommend that either. No, I, 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 no, I, I wouldn't recommend it. No, but I think you could do it. In the yeah. right setting, man, you never know. I think, but I think, because, man, you, your sense of humor, you're quick as hell. And you say some. you said something the other day. What was I talking? Oh, God, don't repeat it. <laughs> Yeah, probably best. Yeah. 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 Matter of fact, I washed that through my head. Let's just let that go. You yeah. said some funny stuff. Let's <laughs> yeah. ruin your whole career. Dr. Phil said, What? Oh, my God. I'm calling Procter and Gamble. You got some dishwashing people talking about, Did you say that? <laughs> yeah. That phone yeah. would be ringing. <laughs> yeah. We don't want people bugging us when we're off by ourselves, right? Yeah. Yeah, that would not be good. That would not be good. Are there good people left in this business? Yeah, I'm sitting across from the one I know, really. Well, I I mean, man, look, man. That's a compliment. No, man, for real, your friendship to me, what you've done for me, what you've shared with me. I mean, I went through some dark times, man. It was so, they were killing me on the internet once about my private life with so many lies. And you brought me on the show and just set the record straight. I can't tell you how far that went. You know, it's, it's, it's guys out there, you know, it's not many, man, but you, you're one of the great people, man, that I've run across, man. That's why I'll stop. Anytime you ask me to do something, i do something with you, man, because you've... The interesting thing about you, man, is you don't want anything in return, and you make that perfectly clear. You've always just been my friend. You've wanted to make sure that I was okay, you know. Even now, with what's going on with me, you know, they released this thing that NBC's going to replace the Steve show with Kelly Clarkson and you know, and I've been on the air for seven years. You know, I'm I don't I don't get bitter about stuff like that. I don't I've been good to NBC for seven years. NBC been good to me. You know, I I got friends over there. I don't really look at life like that, but the first person to pick up the phone was you. Ain't nobody else called me in this business right here. You're the first person to pick up the phone and say, Hey man, what you wanna do? Because, you know, I mean, you know, you're the first person to tell me it ain't over. It's just opportunities. And so, you know, we sat down. And that's what I appreciate. So when you say all that good people in this business, you, I think that uh, Ted Harbor, man, will always be special to me. Because even 
when he gave me that $300,000 check I was telling you about to mm-hmm. open the house, when my show first came, was offered on TV, he was the chairman over at NBC. Guess what he said? I'll take it. He took it just like that. Yeah. So you, Ted Harbour, Tyler Perry's a great guy. Oprah's always been kind to me. That's it. It's four. Yeah. I just named them. And me, five. And that lady over there. Yes. Yeah. She going to do me a podcast. And- <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> when I called you when they made that announcement, I mean, there's just no way that you shouldn't be on the air. I mean, that's what I called and said. I mean, you know, what do you want to do? Yeah. And then I gave you the plan. I said, here's what you want to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, here's a guy who says, hey, man, if this happens, this is what you should do. Not know, oh, man, you want to go have a drink? What you going to do now? Oh, woe is me. You, you don't need that. No, You know, man, you're not a give up guy. I'm not a give up guy. You don't call me with give up information. You call me with ideas and a real solid plan. And I went, wow. And then we sat up here and you said, hey, man, you want to play golf? We went out. We played golf. I said, okay, cool. I went to golf course I ain't never been to. You know, they have other things. You can come to the golf course. Really, there's seven people. You go to golf course and you see a lot of people with ties on. This ain't regular. You go to pro shop and people in pro shop got on a tie. That's not. Where's your polo shirt, sir? But it was really cool. I had a good time, and man, you know, I just appreciate that. Like I said, you you call me and you you got ideas, man. And uh, I mean, you recognize who I am, man. You've always been a fan of that, and you know, and and you're right, and you know, and I'm really really comfortable right now. You know, I'm really in a cool place because you know, if you tell me you're gonna do something to me, it's okay. It's your prerogative. You can do it. You know, I don't own any TV station. You can do what you want to do, but you know, y'all says. Then everybody get to do what they want to do then, you know. So We've talked before about production ideas and stuff for your show. I've always said the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Just tell people, get the hell out of your way. You can have people come tell you how to be Steve. Yeah. <laughs> that is just crazy, isn't it? But here, here, Steve, we got something written out for you here. This is how you go be Steve. Yeah. Are you kidding me? I throw the bullshit flag on that. <laughs> can you say that on the podcast? Yes. Okay. You can say bullshit? Yeah. God, dog. I've been talking for an hour tight. <laughs> She say that you want to. Yeah, I could have released a couple of these openings on me and just let some stuff go. But you know, man, you 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 you're so right. It was sort of. I tell you what was funny, man. The first time we had a cooking segment on the show, and I ain't like the food. That didn't go well at NBC at all. I because you know you watch the Today Show and Good Morning America. Everything they cook, they oh, like. It's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, this is delicious. Well. I'm not that guy. And so it was a big one that really messed him up. You know, my mom been passed since I was 40, and I loved her, man. She's my favorite person in the world. And every year, for 40 years, all I wanted for my birthday was German chocolate cake. So no matter where I was, my mama made me a German chocolate cake and shipped it to me. I didn't care where I was. So my mama been dead about 15 years, you know. And so this lady comes on the show who makes dietary dishes. And she makes the diet version of all dishes. And so she comes on the show and she says, you know what I heard? I heard your mom made you a German chocolate cake every year. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, well, I got something for you. I got a piece of cake right here that's going to taste as good, if not better, than the one your mama made. <laughs> and this right here, we off to a bad start. This ain't a good opening for somebody, you know. 
You know, okay, country boys with their mama, you know, we kind of, yeah. our mama is, country dudes don't, that's, you, mama? I mean, I still call her mama. I'm 61. That's mama. Now, you done told me something that can't possibly be true, but you done drug my mama in. I'm going to make, make a piece of cake taste just as good, if not better, than the one your mother made. I looked at this lady. <laughs> <laughs> and this is not gonna go good, lady. I tell you, but I tell you what, I'm gonna give it a shot, and it better be everything you said it was, and it wasn't. <laughs> I've been in the cake. I went. <laughs> I spit it in a towel. The audience, <laughs> the executive producer, she went. Oh my God. And the woman was standing there. She was with, you spit it out. I said, it wasn't nothing like you said it was going to be. And no, it wasn't better than one my mama made. All I heard was cut. <laughs> cut. And then I heard, what the fuck? <laughs> and then I went, y'all didn't want it. That's too much real. Or was that too much? That was too. Now, it was. A black couple in the audience that day. The dude was on the floor. <laughs> oh, me and him? Oh, oh, oh. oh yeah. Uh, yeah, Steve. Oh. 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 I mean, he's grabbing himself. Oh. This is the funniest thing he's ever heard. And just when me and the black dude was having a great moment, everybody else was mortified. <laughs> And uh, they hollered, cut. Boy, they came and talked to me. I had execs from NBC the next day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so you can't do that? You can't tell the truth? You cannot do that to a guest. I had a little time to think about it. I said, first of all, come on now. The setup was all wrong. You can't tell me, I'm a country boy, that you can do something better than my mama. And and she's dead? Come on now. But then... It's trifling. And they had a long talk with me, and I, I, I didn't, I didn't really think I was gonna be on daytime that long after that. Yeah, you thought that might be the beginning of yeah, the end. Yeah, because I had a couple real moments like that on TV. Yeah, yeah, I had that kind of conversation with ABC early on when I was on Oprah and told a couple that they needed to get a divorce before dark that night. Like that wasn't dark that night. Yeah, that wasn't exactly what they came on to hear. But I mean, come on. I mean, just because you marry somebody doesn't mean it's the right one, right? See, and who phrases it like that? Tonight for dark. <laughs> let's let's speed this up. But I tuned in one day. I thought you was in trouble. You was looking at this dude, and you told him, you said, "Look, man, you need to man up." I went, "Okay." You done said that to a dude. That's usually fighting words in the hood. He he wasn't from the hood. He went there. You you said, you need to man up. You and I went, God dog, that's not daytime-ish. You can't tell a dude you need to man up on daytime TV. That's too much honesty. So when you did that and you stayed on air, I said, Well, you're not quite getting that number. So they gonna keep him on there. He got a three six, so he can probably tell him to man up. I probably got one more piece of cake I can spit out. Yeah, but see, I got my wife in the audience every day. So I told a guy that his wife must have his nuts in a Dixie cup because he w- he just wouldn't do what he needed to do. I looked out there at her, and I thought, I do not have a problem with the network. I got a problem with my wife. You got your nuts in a Dixie cup. <laughs> 
thought. <laughs> yeah. That's why I thought, okay, it's not the network. Uh, yeah. Because well, Robin's sitting there, I go, Robin. She go, you said what? <laughs> well, I mean, she was emasculating him. That's just the country way of saying it, right? <laughs> Got your nuts in a Dixie cup. <laughs> See, that's what I mean, man. You could, you could, in the right place, you could do stand-up, man. Yeah, well. If you did, all you got to do is stories. You ain't got to do jokes. See, oh, I got stories. Because, see, that's what, I'm a storyteller. I'm not a yeah, joke teller. You are a storyteller. Yeah, I don't write jokes, man. I just explain to you in an exasperated form what's happening in the life the way I see it. And I'm at my absolute funniest when I'm exasperated. You come from that same place. If you... It pissed me off. Once you start there, you funny as hell. All you got to do with it starts with it. This pit. You ever get pissed off watching this? If you do pissed off comedy, brother. Yeah, that's my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Robin says I should do my last season on HBO or something where I can say what's in the bubble over my head brother. when I'm talking to some of these people. Because seriously, I mean, come on. Can I be on the front row yes. with a tube sock? And every time you say something, I just pack it in my mouth and just tear up. Yeah. Because I mean, people think, people think doing what we do is easy, right? Yeah. It's just not that easy. No. See, see man, what makes you good is when your guest sucks... That's when it's hard. You can hold the line. That's when it's hard. You got enough to cover. Yeah. When you got a guest sitting there staring at you like a dead trout, that's (laughs) when you're in problem, right? Seriously. They're looking at you like a dead trout. You say something to them and they're just like, God, come on. The producers have talked to these people. Right. They've gotten a story out of them. So now you bring them on TV so they can tell the story. Right. They're leaving out major pieces of information. So I got a divorce. No, 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 no. Wait, no, no. You killed two people, (laughs) which made the man not want to sleep with you no more. That's how you got divorced. You can't leave that out. Yeah, they get out there and freeze. And then it's like pulling teeth, right? Yeah. And one log won't burn. You're sitting there like, come on. I mean, give me something. That's like on Little Big Shots. You know, I used to tell these people all the time, man. I said, you can't produce these four- and six-year-old kids. No, we're going over everything. These are the questions you're going to ask them, Mr. Harvey. I said, okay, let me explain something to you. (laughs) When you open that door... And that little six-year-old who's been doing this in front of an empty house steps out. They hear that music. Them lights is bellowing. And they see all them people. All that stuff you told them that they was going to say, they not finna say none of that. Yeah. I said, I got seven kids and some grandkids. They not going to do it. So they would, we would be over there, and they'd sit on the couch. And I could see them. I could see them about to leave. Because <laughs> I just decided... And the cue card lady is shaking the card, trying to get me to read the card. Because I'm talking about everything but what's on the card. Because I got to get this little person to chill out. Where'd you get them shoes from? How much them shoes cost? What made you put a pink bow on a yellow dress? That's gorgeous. Now the little girl is going, because I like pink? Who bought your shoes, my mother? I got to get them cool. The lady is over there shaking the card. I would go, time out. I said, look, stop shaking these cards at me. 
You have to talk to these kids different. They've got to answer these questions. They don't even want to come out here. They opened the door one time. This little boy looked at the crowd and turned around and went outside <laughs> and just stood by his mama's car door. He threw. He He's not taping today. So we end up taping a lot of kids. Yeah. Because some of them go, hey, man, we do elaborate setups. We got to tear all this setup down because he decided he's not doing it. Yeah. And that's what happens when you, you know, producers produce these kids, man. And that when an adult gets out there and does that, it's a disaster. But you got to be a special talent to do that. And it's you, Ellen, Oprah, very few. You know, when my show came on seven years ago, there hasn't been a daytime show since. No, that's right. Nothing. You start lapping yourself real fast if you don't have a lot of depth and a lot of wit yeah. in, in what you're doing. You are the best storyteller I, I think I've ever heard, the best storyteller. And my favorite story of yours still is about the building fund. That is absolutely my best. <laughs> because my I, went, I grew up in a Baptist church, <laughs> so I know about the building fund. It's the biggest con in the history of the world, and you tell it better than anybody I've ever seen. We did. We had a building fund at my church for 20 years. We ain't put a doorknob on that church. I've been dropping money in that box since I was a little boy. We don't have a doorknob on this church. We didn't get a new stained glass window. One time we got a, uh, my church bought a new neon cross and hung it up over the choir stand. And the big service that day was after the choir sung, they was going to plug it up. Well, they plugged it up and they shorted out the whole church. They plugged it up. The cross came on for two seconds. Thank you, Jesus! Lord, what? Lord, the lights is out. What I said, I said, man, I'm so sick of being poor. If I have got to get some money, because, you know, my father never had money. You know, the biggest advice my father told me, he said, son, best thing you could do for poor people is not be one of them. Exactly. Because you can't help nobody. Right. In my church, I was just sitting there going, why do we keep doing this post stuff? Past anniversary, we put two chairs together and put a white sheet over it. Now, now we, you want, that's a love seat. Yeah. Because we don't hung a white sheet over It's two fold ways under there. And the pastor and the first lady sit there on the white sheet, and I be going, this is really poor. <laughs> this, is, this is really poor. But people haven't been to those churches. I mean, these these churches I grew up in were so poor, and and we did have. I don't know if it's because you didn't have the money for the right choir or what, but they did stand up in church and start worshiping and singing. Yeah, and praying out loud, and it's always somebody that is really old, <laughs> and they really get confused. What did you? What's the lady in your story? Sister Odell. Sister Odell. Oh my God! Did we all have a sister Odell? I love your sister Odell, though. I mean, they, because the old people, they—that's the portion of the service called devotion, right? Where you get to stand up, you can testify, or you can sing a song. You want to sing a song where people join in and sing along with you, but old people write songs on the way in. <laughs> And then you had to try to catch on. I know that Jesus is. Yes, he is. Okay. Rhythm, rhythm, beat, chorus. You do a line. We do a line. You say it. We repeat it. Nothing. Come on, everybody. Everybody what? We don't know the one you wrote on the way in. You wrote this on the way in. 
Jesus is a healer with a with a bicycle. <laughs> Jesus heals with a bicycle. <laughs> I had a lady stood up in church one time, Phil, and she said, uh, she stood up in church and they said, Sister Porter, and she said, I want to thank the Lord today. I was driving in my car and a truck passed me on the left and another truck passed me on the right. Thank you, Jesus. My daddy leaned over and said, this bitch ain't got no business driving. <laughs> my father, he only went to church twice a year. She said, a truck passed me on the right and another one passed me on the left. Thank you, Jesus. He said, this bitch ain't got no business driving. That right there, I got I got a whipping when I got home. <laughs> because my mother was in the choir stand and I was under the pew laughing. I thought my daddy was the funniest person in the world, man. Well, uh, you know what? It's all good, right? Yeah. I mean, it's all experience. Yeah. And you've used every bit of it in your life. It's paid off for you, right? You just remember your roots, you bring them with you, you tell your stories, and people pay you for it. Is that crazy? Is that crazy? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, we, I was talking to Friedman Michael earlier about, they say you've never missed a show in like 16 years. And I'm like, really? We get paid for coming out and talking to people for an hour? What What are you going to miss? Man, I mean, man. People are like out plowing fields and stuff, working like <laughs> real jobs. Right. I'm going to call in sick. Who am I going to call? Me? <laughs> yeah. That's crazy, man. And people don't understand that. You've never missed. 200 episodes now of Family Feud, nine years, I've never missed a show. Seven years of the Steve Harvey show, never missed a show. Seven seasons of the Steve Harvey sitcom, never missed a show. Had to cancel one show because my mama died, but I came back and made it up. In 33 years of stand-up, I missed my call time twice. My car broke down in Knoxville, Tennessee. I was trying to get to Asheville, Tennessee for $75. I couldn't make it. I got there 15 minutes late. They had called in another comedian. He took my job. I had a three shows to do in Birmingham on a Friday night. Weather came in Dallas. I couldn't get out. I drove to a private airstrip for the first time ever and chartered a private jet. That was going to cost me $13,000 one way, a very small leer. But I paid it. I got there, due to weather and everything, they had to take us around, and I landed an hour and a half late and missed the show. Two shows in 33 years. I've never missed anything. But you country, see, your work ethic, you ain't going to... These people out here, them, man, this is... Doing a talk show is so hard. Yeah. You know, I was talking to my trainer the other day, and uh, he was wearing me out. And I sat down in the backyard, and I said, man, this is hard, man. This is hard. He's 27 years old. He used to play for the New England Patriots. He said, no, Mr. Harvey, turning yourself from a poor kid into all of this, this is hard. This little workout, you can do this. He said, how you turned yourself from a poor kid into all of this? I'm training in your backyard. You have all the stuff to train in your yard. He said, no, that's hard. You know what? I got up and finished that set without complaining because he was right. Yeah. There's no two ways about it. We are blessed. Man. We are blessed. Thank you for coming and talking to me today. Man, this wasn't even, this was just me and you. We could have just put a microphone in the golf cart Sunday. We'd have been just fine. We could have stayed home, not done this. You know what, when I come over next time, y'all just had this like a scene on a back porch. Yeah. (laughs) With an old washing machine that ain't nobody used in a long time. And a rusty-ass bike without no pedals on it. (laughs) 
Because that's what it felt like to me. I, I come anywhere for you, man. I wouldn't so, care what you asked me to do. Uh, you've never said no, and I don't think I've ever said no to you. No, Let's you keep that record going. Thank you, brother. All right. Thanks, man. Always. All right. Find Fill in the Blanks in your podcast app. Then subscribe so you don't miss an episode.